So I'm going to start with a quote that I think you will probably recognize. It goes like this. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. You know, during the early months of this pandemic that we're in, I kept seeing this dialogue all over the internet, all over social media. This is a dialogue, of course, from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. I have a feeling that to many people that were uh, posting it, tweeting it, retweeting it, what it sounded like was that kind of neo-Stoic uplift that you could find in popular how-to-live books. But of course, those of us who are deeply into Tolkien know there's more going on in this dialogue than advice on how to keep calm and carry on. And this more is the subject I want to speak about today. Like Frodo, Tolkien himself must have often wished that he could have lived in different times. The death of his mother when he was 12 left him doubly orphaned. He had lost his father long before. He served in the catastrophic sum offensive of the First World War, and he likely wouldn't have survived if he hadn't been invalided out by trench fever. He lost his dearest friends. He wrote, by 1918, all but one of my close friends were dead. And among these friends, there were the three schoolmates with which Tolkien founded the Tea Club and Barovian Society, that's the TCBS, which was dedicated in fun, but also in earnest, to art, faith, and fellowship, so perhaps a precursor of the Inklings. As the war claimed the first member of the group, Tolkien wrote to another to say, my chief impression is that something has gone crack. And yet he believed that the TCBS still stood for something enduring. Friendship to the nth power, he called it. And he felt that they had been granted a spark of fire, as he put it, to kindle a light in a darkened world. That's Tolkien. C.S. Lewis, who did much to make up for these losses in Tolkien's life, must also often have wished that he had lived in different times. He lost his mother when he was young, and he survived an insane schoolmaster, only to come of age in a global war. He too saw action in the Battle of the Somme. He was badly wounded and carried shrapnel in his body for decades, and he inherited the burden of living with and caring for a fallen friend's emotionally challenged mother for the rest of her life. And both Tolkien and Lewis lived long enough to witness the trauma of the Second World War, as well as the social upheavals of 20th century life. They really kind of hit all of it. But what Tolkien and Lewis decided to do with the time that was given them was to create works of art, scholarship, and criticism that salvaged much of the beauty and sanity that was perishing. They were romantics of a sort, but unlike some romantics, they were romantics without rebellion in the lineage of G.K. Chesterton, George MacDonald, John Henry Newman. Tolkien, a philologist, professor of Anglo-Saxon language and literature, famous for his defense of the literary integrity of the Beowulf poem, became the first writer 
and this is truly amazing, just think about this for a second, the first writer to create a mythology single-handedly, complete with invented and also evolving languages that change over time, consistent nomenclature and geography, creation accounts, and complex, sometimes varying and not always totally consistent histories suggestive of oral traditions. I think that is truly an extraordinary achievement. He began creating this mythology in the trenches during the First World War and during his sick leave from the war. And it might have remained just a private hobby, but from a tale he told his children came The Hobbit, as you probably know, from The Hobbit came The Lord of the Rings, which you probably also know, and into this adult fantasy he poured his invented mythology, dedicating this labor of love to England, his mythically impoverished country. We can talk about why he thinks it was mythically impoverished if you want. And Tolkien found a worthy friend in C.S. Lewis. Lewis was a scholar of medieval and Renaissance English literature, a philosopher, a moral satirist, a Christian apologist, a fantasist, a failed poet, unfortunately, a vigorous walker, a nude swimmer, a lover of beef, beer, and tobacco, an inveterate bachelor who woke up one day to find himself a family man, and the public voice of Christian hope more than anyone else during World War II, at least in the English-speaking world. Lewis also played host to the Inklings, which you may have heard of, this Oxford literary salon that he and Tolkien founded together and that met in his rooms at Magdalen College when they weren't hanging out in a couple of Oxford pubs. Without Lewis's encouragement and general egging on, and sometimes criticism, but mostly support, the Lord of the Rings simply wouldn't have seen the light of day. What a loss that would be. And without Tolkien's persuasion, Lewis might never have completed his journey toward a fully realized Christian faith. And between the two of them, they produced an enormous share of the intellectual converts to Christianity in the 20th and 21st centuries, for what that's worth. <laughs> so it was that out of this crucible of suffering, there came a powerful hope, a body of literature that has been sustaining many of us during our own perilous times. So how was this possible? I think in part, it was because Tolkien and Lewis had no utopian illusions to be dashed by the war. As Christians, they believed we are fallen. War, crimes against human dignity, abuse of the environment, political posturing, vulgarity in the arts, these are just the sort of things one would expect from a fallen world. Things really do go crack sometimes, and we are seeing this now with our own eyes. And because of that, I guess I've been reading Lewis and Tolkien somewhat through different eyes. But here's what Lewis has to say about this in a, in a sermon from 1939. I'll, I'll quote a bit. He says, The war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. Even those periods which we think most tranquil like the 19th century, turn out on closer inspection to be full of crises, alarms, difficulties, emergencies. All the animal life in us, all schemes of happiness that centered in this world, 
were always doomed to a final frustration. In ordinary times, only a wise man can realize it. Now the stupidest of us knows. We see unmistakably the sort of universe in which we have all long been living and must come to terms with it. And Tolkien would agree with all that. So were they pessimists? I would say their outlook doesn't fit conventional pigeonholes. It is neither optimistic nor pessimistic nor, in a mundane sense, realistic. If their belief in our fallenness was darker than the ordinary pessimisms of our day, their countervailing Christian hope outshone anything that the sunniest secular optimist could imagine. The dark side of Tolkien's imagination is not difficult to find. It's built into his account of cosmic origins at the beginning of the Silmarillion, um, which I recommend. The creation account in the Silmarillion, when one of the original divine spirits, Melkor, later called Morgoth, disrupts the music of creation with discordant sounds of his own devising. And then consumed by pride and envy, Morgoth bends all his power to the propagation of his satanic rebellion and to the marring of Arda, which is the land set apart for elves and men. Under his influence, there would be kinslaying, captivity, exile, environmental catastrophe, and the slow dwindling of elder races. Dwindling, that's one of Tolkien's favorite words. And although evil will not prevail in the end, things do go crack. The losses are real now, as in the ages of Tolkien's imagined histories. Writing to his RAF officer's son, Christopher, toward the end of the Second World War, Tolkien said he thought he could see Morgoth's influence in this first war of the machines with its atomic weaponry devised by lunatic physicists, as he said, and its supposedly civilized Britons gloating like orc crowds over vanquished foes. Wars are always lost, he told Christopher, and the war always goes on. Writing to a reader in 1956, he said, I am a Christian and indeed a Roman Catholic, so that I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat, though it contains, and in a legend, may contain more clearly and movingly some samples or glimpses of final victory. So if you start looking for these dark elements, you see them everywhere. The long defeat that he just mentioned in that quote refers to the courageous but doomed stand of the Anglo-Saxons against the Vikings in the Battle of Malden, AD 991, and the Old English poem that chronicles it. And you may be familiar with the expression because it echoes in Galadriel's words to Frodo, through ages of the world, we have fought the long defeat. If there is Christian hope in Tolkien's legendarium, we have to admit that it is compatible with a good deal of anguish and uncertainty here below. So <clears throat> why do we want to read about such things when we are conscious of so much dwindling and defeat in our own times? Where's the consolation in hearing Tolkien's heroes foresee the worst and lament, as they so often do, that all their choices have proved ill I think that partly it's the elegiac beauty of the tale, for beauty is always tonic. And partly, I think it's our admiration for courage summoned when hope has fled. 
And partly it's that wonderful relief we get uh, periodically throughout The Lord of the Rings. Those intervals of sanctuary at Crick Hollow, Tom Bombadil's house, Rivendell, LaFlorian, without which this tale would feel like one long, weary, perilous slog. I recall, um, now that I think about it, how glad I felt, and I'm sure you share this, uh, whenever the hobbits have the smallest taste of an ordinary pleasure, even while the world seems to be ending around them, their elevensies and their pipeweed, and their songs like, sing hey for the bath at close of day that washes the weary mud away. That's very heartening. And most of all, what's heartening is to read of the deep friendship that binds these nine companions together across their divisions of race and culture. So here is friendship to the nth power, indeed. And finally, because we are in a fairy story, we know what the characters can't know with certainty, that goodness will prevail in the end, that the moment will come when Sam cries out, Oh, great glory and splendor, and all my wishes have come true. Some critics think that stories with happy endings are juvenile and lowbrow. But Tolkien insisted in his famous lecture on fairy stories that this sudden happy turn in a story, which pierces you with a joy that brings tears, for which he coined the term eucatastrophe, which is now an official entry in the Oxford English Dictionary, he thought this was the highest function of mythopoeic art. The eucatastrophe isn't just an emotional state. It has content. It comes as a revelation. It brings, I quote, a sudden glimpse of truth, which uh, Tolkien tells us is a far-off gleam of the gospel. All fairy stories do this, not just the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings, though, is certainly shot through with far-off gleams of the gospel. The people of Middle-earth are natural monotheists, although it's an ancient monotheism with room for honoring subordinate divine powers. That scene, if you recall, of Faramir's uh, grace at mealtime, he's just facing west and he's silent and subdued. I think that speaks volumes about this religious culture. The wise have an intuition about providence. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, Gandalf says, and help often comes unlooked for, which is another favorite expression of Tolkien, suggestive of grace and also um, preferable to him, uh, preferable from um, unexpected, could have used the more Latin sort of sounding word, but unlooked for, help comes unlooked for. Also in this culture, death is a mystery and a gift feared by men and half longed for by elves. But what lies beyond, at least after you pass through the Hall of Mandos, cannot be fully pictured because it has not yet been revealed. So what we should be looking for in The Lord of the Rings is not a retelling of the gospel under cloak of fiction, but a prefiguring of the gospel. This is the fairy story come into its own as preparatio evangelica, preparation for the gospel. 
So it is that we hear anticipations of Marian devotion in invocations of the heavenly queen Varda, as in the Elvish hymn, A Elbereth Gilthoniel, and hints of a future bread of life in Elvish waybread. And so it was that Tolkien could assure his Jesuit friend, Father Robert Murray, great scholar of Syriac Christianity, by the way, um, that the Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, that's a quote from a letter to Murray, with its religious content absorbed into the story and symbolism, and the Blessed Virgin the foundation of all its sense of beauty. All that from a letter to Robert Murray. Well, if the happy ending, um, characteristic of the fairy story, is, again, not just a sop to wishful thinking, but gospel truth. What do we make of the sad element within the happy ending? Spoiler alert, about to talk about the ending of The Lord of the Rings. That is Frodo's betrayal of his mission at the brink of Mount Doom. I have come, he said, but I do not choose now to do what I came to do. I will not do this deed. The ring is mine. This really outraged a lot of Tolkien's readers, especially the ones that have been waiting for this to come out in installments. And so they, they poured their scorn on him in letters. And to answer them, Tolkien pointed out that Frodo had embarked on his mission out of love for the Shire, had taken on the burden that no one else could bear, and had exhausted every ounce of his strength in the effort to the point that his mind and will were crushed. Tolkien believed in free will, but he was realistic about its limits. He had experienced war. He knew that the best of men can be broken, but there's no moral failure in Frodo's case, Tolkien insisted. Rather, there's a lesson here for us to look for the spark of goodness in beings far more ruined than Frodo, even in the golems of our day. Pity for Gollum not to have slain him when there was a chance turns out to have been a crucial piece in the providential puzzle. The incorrigibly evil figures in the tale, on the other hand, can be identified by their absolute inability to sing hay for the bath. They cannot fathom friendship. Having rejected the original good in which they were made, they have become incurvatus in se, turned in upon themselves. Bent is the word Lewis uses for this favorite Augustinian expression, which has its roots in the Latin Vulgate Bible, um, or in the Latin Bible. Not necessarily Vulgate for Augustine. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yes, bent, incurvatus in se. And though they gain a perverse power by this bending, what they grasp is a terrible solitude, emptiness, the antithesis of friendship. Sauron is incapable of imagining that the ring bearer's companions would risk challenging him directly without having the ring at their command. Yet by this mad and calculable act of friendship to the nth power, Sauron's attention is drawn away from Frodo just as he is nearing Mount Doom. So I just wonder who can read this tale during a pandemic without wishing to belong to such a fellowship whose members like the limbs of the mystical body can be counted on to carry one another's burdens. The Fellowship of the Ring is among other things, a far off gleam of the church. Let's turn now to C.S. Lewis. And 
as we do so, I'm, I'm struck that everything I've just said about Tolkien can be transferred to Lewis's account. The same love of language and story, the same Christian platonic understanding of good and evil, the same sense that our world is under siege, the same conviction that our deepest wishes are an index of truth, not of illusion, the same faith in a final eucatastrophe. But Lewis is more the preacher than Tolkien. Only in Tolkien's private letters does his vision of gospel hope appear unmistakably clothed in its Catholic Eucharistic and Marian colors. Lewis, on the other hand, preached that gospel hope from the housetops, from the pulpit of Oxford's Church of St. Mary the Virgin, from the podium of the Socratic Club, and from the radio in every home and pub tuned into the BBC during the Second World War. Apologetics became Lewis's war work during the 1940s. He argued that belief in an objective universal moral law, which he called the Tao in his book, The Abolition of Man, which any child who says that that's not fair implicitly acknowledges, entails belief in a divine moral lawgiver. He argued that our natural yearning for a joy which nothing in this world can supply is an indication that we are made for a blessedness beyond the world. He argued that reductionist forms of naturalism self-destruct, that reason itself is proof that there is something beyond what naturalism, or you could say materialism, physicalism, considers to be the whole show. He argued that if Christ wasn't what he claimed to be, the Son of God, then he must have been a liar or a lunatic. I would say that none of these arguments is unassailable. I'm not convinced by all of them myself. But what matters is that Lewis found a way to defend the full-bodied, supernatural, and dogmatic faith at a time when other public voices of Christianity were all for watering things down in the sort of honest-to-God manner. That's a popular book. Lewis was also a genius at moral psychology, mapping in works like the Space Trilogy, the Screwtape Letters, and the Great Divorce, those incremental choices that gradually lead either to the beatific or, as he coined it, the miserific vision. Few have matched Lewis in portraying the downward spiral from seemingly minor habits of self-regard into selfish imprisonment in a hell of one's own making. His theory, as you may know, is that hell is locked from the inside. By the same token, few recent authors have succeeded so completely in making the journey toward blessedness and the life of the blessed rationally plausible and imaginatively real. Lewis tells us that when we think of the future life, which maybe shouldn't be all the time, but when we do, we should think of it as more rather than less concrete than our life here below. We should think of our present life, as Lewis puts it, in his sermon, Transposition, which is probably my favorite piece of Lewis writing outside of his fiction. Uh, what am I saying? We should, look at, we should think of our present life as the, I'm quoting, the diminution, the symbol, the attiolated, as it were, the vegetarian substitute for the real banquet. 
Um, he uses a, he makes a reference to that novel Flatland uh, about two-dimensional beings having trouble conceiving of a third. Um, so we're Flatlanders here, um, here below, but we will find ourselves in a world of true solids in heaven. Our natural ways of sensing, feeling, and knowing will be flooded and drawn up into the life of glory rather than canceled out. But that will be then, and this is now. And Lewis's message about Christian life in a world under siege is loud and clear, even a tad too obvious at times. So for instance, in this wartime broadcast talk on the BBC, he says, and this shows up in Mere Christianity, which is based on those talks. I quote, enemy occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. If you've read Paralandra, the second of the Space Trilogy books, that is Lewis's retelling of Paradise Lost, which was part of his project to uh, defend the legacy of John Milton. Um, but he locates it on Venus. Well, anyway, if you've read Paralandra, which I do recommend, you'll remember that there's this scene in which the fictional Lewis, who's a character in the novel, is bombarded by these inner voices that the early monastic tradition called logismi. That's spelled L-O-G-I-S-M-O-I -I in uh, transliteration. That instill fear and suspicion in his mind as he tries to make his way to the cottage of Elwyn Ransom, who is the Tolkien-esque hero of the tale. I was rereading Paralandra a little while ago, and this scene made me wonder, what logismi are assailing us now? Doubts and suspicions? conspiracy theories, doom scrolling. This is just what one would expect in a world under siege. So what shall we do about it? What do Lewis and Tolkien tell us to do about it? Of course, there's a hobbit heroism in simply refusing to heed these voices. These lockies me. And in moments of leisure, if we have them, the best thing may be to sing hay for the bath and take such innocent hobbit pleasures as we can find. Life's greatest pleasure, Lewis once told the Spencer and Milton scholar Alistair Fowler, was, quote, the pleasure after walking for hours of coming to a pub and relieving yourself. But a close second for Lewis was the pleasure of reading. Why read? <laughs> Literary reading he's talking about, not, not, you know, reading advertisements or something. Why read? Why do we love to read? We seek an enlargement of our being, Lewis tells us in an experiment in criticism. We want to see with other eyes, to imagine with other imaginations, to feel with other hearts as well as with our own. Literary experience heals the wound without undermining the privilege of individuality. There's some ellipses in this quote that I'm giving you. I hope you just go and pick up an experiment and criticism and read the whole thing, but 
I'll finish with this part. Here, as in worship and love and moral action and in knowing I transcend myself and am never more myself than when I do. The pandemic may keep us out of pubs, but it can't keep us out of books. And if our choice of books, guided by what we enjoy rather than what we think we ought to like, takes us in the direction of old books, so much the better for Lewis. Old books, Lewis says, keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. This is a passage from his introduction to a translation of Athanasius on the Incarnation by his friend, the Anglican nun, Sister Penelope. He's a, a great little tribute to old books there. Old books give us a way to escape from what Chesterton called the degrading slavery of being a child of one's age. Nor can the pandemic keep us, if we have a way to step outside, from experiencing the enlargement of being that can be ours simply by looking up at the sky. So what I want to do right here is actually put two things together. What Lewis has to say about the purpose of reading and something Lewis tries to do by having us look up at the sky. It's an experiment that Lewis in The Discarded Image, which is a collection of his essays on medieval literature based on his Oxford lectures, um, an experiment he's inviting us to perform. You can do this yourself at home tonight. Go out at night, he says, and look up at the sky. If there's not too much light pollution, there should be some stars up there. Looked at through modern eyes, the night sky just goes on and on. It elicits awe, but it conveys little in the way of articulate meaning. But what if we try to look through the eyes of our medieval ancestors? Lewis is performing this experiment just to get people to understand how to read medieval literature. But it has a great sort of spiritual resonance. So let me continue with this. So we're now out on a starlit walk, looking up at the sky and trying to see it in terms of what Lewis called the medieval model. Now the scene changes dramatically. We find ourselves in the lowest, smallest, and innermost sphere of a universe of concentric planetary spheres set in motion by the primum mobile, the first movable at God's behest. Its stars full of life and intelligence, its structure recapitulated in the powers of the soul and in the ranks of created things, from stones to plants to beasts to men, its angels and fairies fulfilling the principle of plenitude, its material elements drawn to their proper stations by kindly inclining, that's Chaucer's expression. Love is the gravitational force of this universe, and God, in the order of grace, this may sound paradoxical, is its true center. I have to reverse the map there. The main thing is it's mind-bogglingly vast, although you know people had this idea that the medieval universe was kind of small and pokey, and, but it, no, it's vast. And yet it's not just a trackless expanse. It's knit together by an inner telos, a directedness. It tells a story, it has a structure. It's like a great cathedral, looking up into that great building of the universe. One is both humbled and exalted by the sight. Now this reminds me of another night sky episode, going back to the Lord of the Rings. Soon after Sam and Frodo escaped from Kirith Ungal, Sam stopped to look up at the night sky. Now nothing quite so grand as a cathedral struck his eyes, 
all he could see was a single white star. But from that single star, I quote, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. So Tolkien and Lewis thought that there must be a way to recover the sense of light and high beauty of the universe as an ordered whole and the human person made in the image and likeness of God. But it, you know, it's not a matter of rejecting modern science. Any sound scientific account of the universe is testimony to the harmony of mind and nature. And Lewis will tell us that is miracle enough if only we had the eyes to see it. Meanwhile, during our time of pandemic isolation, we can repel the logismy by prayer and charity as the tradition teaches us, and also by small acts that take us out of ourselves, reading our way into other worlds, friendship with whatever rational animals we can find, baths that wash the weary mud away, and looking up at the night sky with a mind and heart prepared to see in its fastness the liniments of meaning and purpose. Thank you.